what we've been doing for the past few weeks now is we've been going to the scriptures to see what God says about the church. So essentially, we are doing some systematic theology. We are doing a doctrinal study on the doctrine of the church. And recently, we considered this question together. Is church membership biblical? And we looked at the fact that if there's really no direct command in Scripture that says something like, thou shalt become a church member, then why should anyone do that? Why emphasize it so much? Well, it actually turns out, and we saw in that message, that the concept of church membership is present all over the New Testament. And I encourage you, if you missed that sermon, to go back and listen to it. Then last week, we began to answer a related question, which was this. Since church membership is biblical, what are the responsibilities of a church member? It's like saying, okay, I joined the church, now what, right? And so this is part two of that answer. In part one last week, we covered five different biblical responsibilities of church members. Here's the ones that we went over. Assemble, participate, protect, define, and love. Just quickly running through them with very little detail. You'll have to go back and listen if you want more detail. But one, we assemble. We gather on a regular basis in obedience to the Word of God, most explicitly probably in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, which talks about not neglecting to meet together, right? And then we participate. And what we meant by that last week is we participate in the ordinances of the church that Jesus instituted. He instituted two different ordinances in his church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, one of which we get to participate in today. I'm thankful for that. Then we protect. What do we protect? Church members protect the gospel. When we, in our own private time, when we pursue this deeper knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures for ourselves, we're not only helping ourselves as individuals, but we're helping the entire church. We're helping protect the entire church from false teaching because we can spot it, each one of us, because we know our Bibles, right? We also define the membership in a sense that each church member is partly responsible for both receiving members and dismissing members. And we talked about that some. And then church members also have a responsibility to love. Love God, first and foremost, right? That governs everything. And then also love one another. In Ephesians, it says we are to be rooted and grounded in love. Everything we do, in other words, is under this banner of love. In love, not in our definition, but love in the definition of God, how God defines love. And of course, we went into much more detail on each of those points last week. So uh, please use the technology that God has blessed all of us with to be able to go back and listen anytime you want. All that is available to you on the church website. So today, 
we are going to add four more responsibilities from the scripture to that list. So here is number six. Submit. Submit. Submission is an essential part of being a church member. I think I told you um, in that sermon, I pointed this out in the sermon about the biblical case for church membership that church membership is unlike any other types of memberships that we're familiar with. You know, you can become a member of Costco. You can become a member of a golf club. You can become a member of a gym to work out in. All those things are different types of memberships that we're familiar with. But when it comes to a local church, it's actually very appropriate to say it this way. When you join a church, you submit to that church. We are agreeing to submit ourselves to a particular set of Christians to help us follow Jesus. We're asking that particular set, that particular body in that particular place to care for us and love us and help us and, yes, even try to bring us back when we start straying away from God. So, Who is it exactly that we are to submit to in this act of church membership? Well, it's two things. It's both submitting to one another and submitting to the leaders of the church that you're joining. Let's look at some uh, biblical texts that tell us this. First, Ephesians 5.21 talks about this. Submitting to one another out of reverence. Christ. Ephesians 5, 21. When you join a church in formal membership, you essentially make yourself a willing servant to that body of believers. It's not like, by the way, in case that worries you, what? I've got to become a servant. It's not like the bad stories at the university of the sororities and the fraternities where the people who've been there the longest get to abuse you until you earn your place or something. Um, As soon as you become a church member, the existing members of that church submit to you as well. It's mutual in the sense that they want to serve you and they want to help you and, and, and walk with you and lock arms with you on this pilgrimage that we're all on as believers, if you are a believer here today, this pilgrimage toward heaven. And your fellow church members are gonna value you and honor you and listen to you and you do the same for them. And like Philippians says, you're gonna consider other members more significant than yourselves. And in that way, we submit to one another. Or in the words of the apostle Peter, He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, cover yourselves, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's 1 Peter 5, 5. And all that is done, as Ephesians said, out of reverence for Christ. And you know, when every church member takes that responsibility before God, 
when every church member takes that seriously, it is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. That is what we could call a gospel culture. People of humility. People who know that they have been forgiven much, right? Jesus said, he who, for, who, he who has been forgiven little loves little, Luke 7, 47. Church members are people who realize that God has forgiven them not just a little tiny bit of sin, but a lot of sin because we are sinners to the core, right? They realize how patient God has been with them. And so they can be patient with others. And when that is the culture of a church, when that's the vibe of the church, if you want to use it like that, I'm not sure why anybody would not want to be a member of something like that. That is a beautiful thing. Will it be perfect? No, far from it. But there is no community like it. It's a supernatural community. It's a countercultural community unified around the gospel. These aren't, when we think about this submission to one another, this picture comes into sharp focus. These aren't high and mighty, self-righteous people. They're meek. They're servants. They're not looking down their nose at me, um, thinking that they're better than me. They're fellow strugglers. They're fellow sinners. Sinners who have found refuge and, and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ and just want others to find it too. So church members submit to one another by serving one another, by being humble with one another. Who else do church members submit to? The Bible makes it clear that church members are also to submit to the leaders of the church. We looked at this before, um, but let's look at it again. Hebrews 13 verse 17 says this, and I hope maybe you can take notes and take more time with each of these. But Hebrews 13 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So not only uh, is this statement in that verse evidence that it is God's will that we actually have leaders over us in the local church who, who can get to know us well, know us enough to shepherd us and so forth. It's also an example in Scripture that tells us what our posture should be toward those that lead the church. The elders of the church are, are men that are raised up by God, affirmed by the whole church congregation to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word of God so that they can shepherd and equip us to do what God calls us to do. And those elders are going to have to give an account to God for how they did this. That is a serious thing. But we see so well, I see it so clearly, um, the wisdom of God to set up this clear pattern of a plurality of elders 
so that the church isn't following and submitting and obeying one guy. They are following multiple shepherds who meet together, who hold one another accountable, who help one another make sound decisions, who know their people, who talk about how they can best minister to those people, and so on and so forth. And the writer of Hebrews says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. In other words, don't give your shepherds a hard time. Submit to them. Don't be a thorn in their side. And I don't know of anybody like that in our church. I, I just, I'm just preaching what the Word of God says, so don't think I'm pointing at someone. But I've heard of people in churches who feel like who feel like it's their duty to keep the pastor humble in their own way, I guess. And so they constantly disagree with them, or they constantly criticize them, or they constantly just give them a general hard time, right? God says, don't do that. I've given you shepherds to watch over your soul. They're devoting their very lives to teaching you, to praying for you, to equipping you. And if you make it extra hard on them, how in the world is that going to be beneficial to you? That's what he says. That would be of no advantage to you. So the implication is to make them most effective. Submit to them, let them lead, and they'll be able to do that job that the Lord's given them with joy and not with groaning, and you will be the direct beneficiary of that. Much more can be said about that, but that's number seven. Church members submit both to one another in loving, humble service and to the leaders of the church as they keep watch over our souls. Moving to number seven, evangelize. This is a responsibility of every church member. Church members are to constantly be sharing the gospel with everyone that they possibly can. Um, did you know that in Ephesians chapter 4, the Lord explicitly states that it is the job of all the saints to do the work of the ministry? The job of all the saints. I think that is probably misunderstood by a lot of people in churches today. Um, evangelism and lots of other aspects of ministry aren't just the job of the people in full-time ministry. It's all of our responsibility. Let's look at it together. This is uh, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. It says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, here it is, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So it's not merely the pastor's and elder's job to do the work of ministry all by themselves, but they are in a position to equip all the saints to do the work of the ministry. And what is one massive aspect to the ministry? What kind of ministry are we talking about? Well, we can look very clearly in 2 Corinthians 5 where we're told that Christians have been given a ministry of reconciliation. God 
It says there he's reconciling the world to himself through his son, Jesus, and he's entrusted the message of that reconciliation to all of us, his redeemed people. And he says, we're ambassadors for Christ. He says, we're supposed to be God's mouthpiece to the world. Here it is. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. So in a sense... Our meetings are like the huddle for the saints. And then when we leave here, we go out and we actually run the plays. This is where, this is where every church member gathers together to become better equipped so that we can all then go out and be ambassadors. This is where we regroup. This is where we get re-encouraged. This is where we get equipped to do this. And um, if you go into a Christian bookstore, if there is such a thing nowadays, uh, there's lots of church growth books, how to grow the church and all sorts of titles. But there's really only one God-ordained church growth program. You know what it is? It's God's people going out in their own lives and proclaiming the gospel to people. There it is. That's it. When we do that, God grows his church. It's not a formula per se, but it is how God works. He saves people through the hearing of the gospel. And when he saves people, they are baptized and incorporated into the church, and then those people are then continuously taught to obey all that the Lord has commanded us. That's just the pattern. That's how the church grows. So church members, are you doing that? Are you sharing the gospel? We could look at verse after verse that makes it so clear that this is our responsibility just for the sake of time, I'm just going to share one with you from 1 Peter. We could spend the whole time together looking at them, but listen to 1 Peter 2.9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Christians are people chosen by God, set apart for him in holiness, so that we would proclaim the excellencies of what he's done through Jesus Christ. That's every Christian, every church member. We are to be proclaiming those excellencies. Maybe you're here today, or you're listening to this later, perhaps, with the, all the technology that's available to us now. But maybe you're here today, and you've never really heard what this good news is, 
or you hadn't heard it very clearly, or maybe it just hasn't clicked with you. What if I told you that you could have all your sins forgiven forever? That interest you? Did you know that you could leave here today having been made right with your maker and become permanently safe in him? There's no multi-step process to it. There's no working your way up to it. There's no patches you have to earn. There's no tests you have to pass. There's no hoops you have to jump through. Here's how God has set up this glorious gift of salvation to us. Are you ready? Instead of leaving sinful humanity in our sin and our filth, in our brokenness, God actually took it upon himself to send us a redeemer. That in and of itself is an act of unfathomable mercy. Would you want to pursue your enemies to rescue them? That's what God did. And the way he did it was to give us another representative man. You see, Adam, the first man, acted as our representative before God. And when he sinned, sin was passed down to all of his descendants. That's all of us. So sin is in our very nature now. If you wonder why it's so natural for you and I to love sin, that's why. It's in us. Our sin nature passed from our father, Adam. That makes all our desires just out of whack, right? So what does God do? Does he say, you know what? Work harder at being good people and I'll really think about saving you. That would be such a cruel thing for God to say, wouldn't it? When you understand what man is and what's in here and how broken our desires are, that would be a cruel thing to tell people who are so out of whack whose hearts are so full of sin to tell them to do the right thing on their own power, can't do it. We can't do it. The prophet Jeremiah sums up our, uh, our sinful condition when he says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. So a leopard can't say, I think I'll just get rid of these spots. Just like that, we can't say, I think I'll just get rid of this sin. We can't do it. So what God did for us hopeless sinners was to send us a second representative man. This time, he sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he took on human flesh and became our fellow man. And instead of failing to obey God like Adam did, Jesus obeyed his father in every single respect. He never sinned one time. And it was the sovereign plan of God to send this perfectly innocent, sinless 
son to provide atonement for our sin. And Jesus willingly takes on this task out of love for his father and love for sinners. And he lays down his life at the cross. And that, that's exactly what it was. It was a laying down of his life willingly. He said, no man takes my life for me. I lay it down of my own accord. John 10, 18. And we saw earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, what God was doing there. There's this awesome exchange that's happening. Theologians have called it the great exchange. And that will be forever the best news that anyone will ever hear in your entire life is this, that at the cross, God was laying the sins of every person who would ever come to faith in Jesus. He laid all those sins on Jesus. Jesus was taking our sin there. He was acting as our substitute. And God pours out his righteous wrath against Jesus instead of us. He, he pours out the wrath that we should have received in hell he pours it out on his son instead. So that now, whoever will turn from their sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ as their only Savior, as the only, made of, only way to be made right with God, they are given the righteous record of Jesus. Jesus' sinless record replaces their sinful record. It's the great exchange. Christ takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. Can you imagine that? That's glorious. And the good news that Christians have to share is this. That can be you today. If you turn from your sin... You turn to Jesus in faith. It happens instantaneously. He makes you right with God right on the spot. You have a new heart that has new desires. And you know, by the way, that that's how it's, um, it's genuine, that it's a real work of God, that you begin to hate your sin. You loved it before. Now you hate it. You're constantly fighting against it. And now you love God's word and you love God's people and you love obeying him and you get this unexplainable peace that passes all understanding when you know that when you stand before God, he will say to you, come into the joy of your master. He won't condemn you. And then you have even more good news. That same Christ rose from the grave three days after being crucified. Now he's glorified in heaven. And he promises that one day he's going to raise all of his people and bring them all to live with him in heaven where there won't be any more pain or death or sorrow or sin. And what do you have to do to uh, receive that gift? As I said, you just have to repent and believe in Jesus as your Savior. Not some option among many saviors, but the Savior, the only way. And you don't come to him with a resume that says, I've got these good things, Lord. I hope you'll be proud and, and save me. 
The only thing on our resume that you bring is the sin that needs forgiveness. That's all that's there. And you just bring it to him and you say, Lord, I need your mercy. I need your grace. Will you make me right with you? And it's, and it's my desire to make you my master now. I want to do things your way. And when a person does that, their slate is wiped clean. He makes that person right with God. And he even gives you the Holy Spirit of God living within you. Who's teaching you day by day and helping you understand the Bible and bringing truthful things to mind about Christ from Scripture. And he helps you fight against your sin. And you won't be sinless in this life, but one day he's going to glorify you so that you won't have to be engaged in that fight any longer. It'll be gone. Your sins will be gone forever. And then we get to experience the peace and the joy that we were made for. This totally unhindered communion with our creator directly in his presence forever getting to do things and experience things that will blow our minds for the rest of eternity so will you go on loving your sin today or will you bring it to Jesus and trust in his perfect righteousness to save you and free you from being a slave to that sin. That is the gospel. That is the good news that if you come to him, he will not cast you out. He'll give you rest. All your problems won't be solved instantly, but your biggest one will. Your greatest problem, which is the terrifying prospect of one day standing before your creator covered in your rebellious sin against him. He's taken away all that fear in Christ because if you're in him, he doesn't see that sin on you anymore. He sees Christ's righteousness, which makes you perfectly fit for heaven all by his merit, not yours. What a glorious gospel that is. I wanted to share it with you today in case you hadn't heard it, but I also wanted to remind you that is what all church members need to have on their tongues. Not in the exact way that I worded it today, but in your own way, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for sinners so that he might save and bring people to himself. Church members are responsible to evangelize. Number eight, give. Church members give their time, their talent, their resources, and yes, even their money to the local church that they've committed themselves to. And I know there are all kinds of spiritual abuse happening here about, around money in our culture. You turn on the TV, for instance, and there's preachers on there who constantly talk about giving them money um, and attaching God's name to their get-rich scheme, saying that if you give money to them, God will make you rich. That is a false gospel 
called the prosperity gospel is not from God, it's from Satan. Um, and those preachers, if you can call them that, are using God's name to get rich and causing other people to sin because they feel justified in having this desire to be rich because God's name is now attached to it. That is a wicked thing, and we abhor the prosperity gospel. Having said that, we ought not shrink away from speaking about money, though. The Bible has a lot to say about how Christians ought to handle their money. For instance, Jesus says this in Matthew 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is Jesus saying? He's basically saying that we can gauge our hearts by how we use our money. To say it another way, the use of money acts like a thermometer for our hearts. Where are we investing what God has given us? Should we invest it all in earthly things or should we invest in something eternal that's gonna last beyond this lifetime? A man named Jamie Dunlop puts it this way in, in his little booklet that he has um, about giving. Let me read you a quote. He says, quote, Benjamin Franklin is famous for saying that nothing in this world is certain but death and taxes. Had he been a Christian, he might have mentioned a third, the local church. After all, no other institution has Jesus' promise, promise of permanence. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, Matthew 16, 18. And then he says, it's like God whispering in your ear in 1890, invest in the automobile. Or in 1990, invest in the internet. In Matthew 16, Jesus is telling the apostles, invest in the church. This one's gonna last. So you want a good return on your investment? Invest in things that have God's guarantee on them. Invest in something that will last beyond this earthly life into eternity. Church members give to the local church. Just to give you another resource, I gave a sermon in 2022 that you might be interested in listening to for more detail about Christian giving. It's called Giving, an Act of Worship. And we were going through the book of Philippians at the time, and we got to chapter 4 in verses 14 to 20. Let me just remind you what the apostle said there. He is commending the believers in Philippi for giving him money to help his gospel work. And listen to what he says. I'll bring it up here. This is Philippians 4, 17 to 18. He says, Not that I seek the gift, 
But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And look at what what he calls these gifts. These monetary gifts. A fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, that's not the typical way that most people think about giving nowadays. The gifts sent by God's people, their contributions to missionary work, we might say, are said to be a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This is the point I'm trying to make. When we give of our money to the gospel ministry, and we do it cheerfully, like 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, we are doing something that pleases God. He receives it as an act of worship to him. It's like this lovely fragrance. It's a pleasing sacrifice to him. So I think we need to train ourselves to think like that. As I give of my money to the local church, this is an act of worship. To my God, who saved me. He's been so kind to forgive me, to wash me clean, to give me peace with him. All that I have is his anyways. And so I just want to cheerfully give a portion back to him from what he's blessed me with. So that the local church can steward that money for the great commission. And continue it on, the the gospel work throughout the world. And I think that's another thing we need to wrap our minds around when it comes to giving. The reason that giving is a responsibility of every church member is because the Great Commission is the responsibility of every church member. If we truly want the gospel to go forth, and if we truly want the body of Christ to continually be built up and discipled, then we will be willing and happy to give our money toward that end. So giving is a lot of things. It's an act of worship to God. Uh, It's a helpful thermometer for where my heart really is. Am I clinging with a white-knuckle fist to my money? Or do I say, you know what? God gave it to me anyways. I want it to be used for his glory. And we release it cheerfully. It's a way to keep the Great Commission going strong. It's an opportunity for us to put our money where our mouth is, literally, I guess. And ultimately, it brings glory to God. How does it do that? Let me use John Piper's analogy. He says this, quote, Why do I give my wife flowers? Not because I have to. Imagine the look on her face if that's what I told her. But because I want to. Because she's amazing. Because she's delightful. Because I want, in some small way to communicate all of my feelings of love for her and delight in her to her, end quote. So in the same way, the heart that loves and cherishes its Savior will want to give toward the things that the Savior loves, the institution that the Savior's using for the salvation of the world, the things that the Savior's using for the building up of his people. That's the local church. And then on top of that, for some reason, God chooses to bless us for doing it. 
Now, that is a gracious setup, isn't it? He rewards us in heaven for giving him of what he already owns and what he gave us in the first place? Why does he do that? We only have money because he provided it for us, right? And yet when we're faithful to give him back a portion of it through his local church to be used for his glory, he rewards us. I don't know why, but he does. And Paul says there in Philippians 4 that their giving was a good thing, not because he wanted the gift, but because he wanted them to receive the reward for it. Verse 17, amazing. So there it is. Church members give. Lastly, number nine. Church members pray. Church members are to be people of prayer. Paul told the believers in Rome in chapter 15 and verse 30 to strive together with him in their prayers to God on his behalf. Church members are to be constantly praying for many things, for their leaders, for their fellow members, for the health of the church as a whole, for the spread of the gospel in their community and around the world. Lots of things to pray for. Paul talks about this man named Epaphras in Colossians 4.12. This is what he says about Epaphras. He was always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Wow, what a commendation that was. Do we do that? As church members, do we pray for our fellow members that they may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God? I love having the church directory app on my phone. I hope all of you do that have any sort of phone because we can pull that thing out anytime, go through the list of members, and pray for one another. I highly recommend you do that. Get on the email prayer list so that you can pull up your email as well. Pray through that list anytime you want to. We just need constant prayer. And you know what? I've found this. This is is my personal testimony to you. I've seen it firsthand in my time, my short time as a pastor. The more that you pray for people, the more you love those people. It's just how it works. I can't explain it. It just works. It is hard to be mad at people you pray for. It's hard not to love people that you're praying for and bring into the throne of grace often. That's my testimony to you. God uses prayer to cultivate a love in your heart for those people. We could look at so many scriptural examples of prayer, of prayer for one another. Let me just read a couple to show us what the early church was doing, to show us what we should be doing. This is just the pattern that believers, that members of churches do. Acts 12, 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. 
Acts 2.42 says that the, uh, these people that were being saved and they were being added to the church, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Romans 12.12 says be constant in prayer. That's plain enough, isn't it? 1 Thessalonians 5.17 essentially says the same thing, pray without ceasing. So that the encouragement, the commands to prayer in Scripture are numerous. So it ought to go without saying, church members ought to be prayer warriors. Come to prayer meeting. Pray with other believers. If our church is going to be used by God, it's going to be how the book of Zechariah puts it, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We need God. We need his Holy Spirit to help us or we won't be fruitful. And the church that recognizes its deep need for God in everything that it does will not only pray individually, but will often pray corporately as well. So there's some of our responsibilities as church members. Could we have listed other responsibilities or reworded some things slightly different or perhaps broke down some of those into subcategories? Yes, we could. Um, But I hope this was at least a good overview. I almost categorized these into just three categories. I almost did it like this. Christians, church members have a responsibility to holiness, unity, And love. Just about everything that we talked about for the past two weeks could fall under one of those headings. And then we ought to say this as we close this little two part responsibilities of church members. Why are church members charged with these particular responsibilities? Here's why because we are to imitate and exhibit the character of our God. We should, for instance, we should walk in holiness because he is holy. We ought to love because he is love. We ought to be unified because the divine trinity is unified. We could go on and on. There's so much depth we could go into, but I hope these two sermons were helpful to you. I hope they either taught you or or at least reminded us of what our responsibilities are. And if you're not a church member, again, I just I pray that God would use these past few sermons to just cause you to think about that next step. It's a clear biblical step for every Christian to take. And I'm here, Mark's here, to answer questions about that or pray with you or help you if you have anything along those lines. I think we should do this. I mentioned it earlier. After hearing all those Uh, responsibilities, those biblical responsibilities, I think we ought to read our entire church member covenant together. We usually read about half of it every time we have the Lord's Supper, and then the very next time we have it, we'll read the other half, and so about every two months, we're reading through it in, in its entirety, but it just seems appropriate after hearing this today that we ought to read the whole thing and With all that fresh on our mind, I think we'll see that our membership covenant is simply a rewording of all the things that we've been looking at for the past two weeks. It is not extra biblical 
extra things that God really doesn't tell us to do, but if you're going to be a church member, you got to go over and above and do these other things that we've made up. No, it's just the description of what a Christian should be. So let's all stand. And whether you're a member or not, just go ahead and stand. But if you are a member, please read along with me, and let's just remind ourselves one more time what we committed ourselves to when we became church members of Jackson Bible Church. So read out loud with me if you are a member. If you're not, just follow along, and I pray that you would just be drawing some conclusions in your mind, like, okay, yeah, we, we talked about that. I could see how that would be under this category. These are biblical things. Read it with me. Having been brought by divine grace to repent and receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of the triune God and this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. Number one. I will faithfully participate with this church in worship, prayer, study, fellowship, and the ordinances of baptism and communion, and will use my spiritual gifts for the common good. Through my involvement and even sacrifice, I will seek to illustrate to my family and the immense significance of life in the body of Christ. Two, in addition to attending the regular meetings of the church, in the spirit of a true disciple of Christ, I will diligently train myself and my family in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, seeking to develop Christian character and practical godliness. Three, I acknowledge that sin leaves me with weaknesses and failures, but I will not use them to excuse bad behavior, but instead will strive to live a godly life. I will pursue holiness and seek genuine repentance and forgiveness when necessary. I will not abuse or treat as cheap the grace of God by which we are all saved. Four, I will accept and fellowship with all members regardless of ethnicity, background, social status, level of education, etc., since all are of equal value in Christ. Five, I will pursue peace with all people, especially with other believers, always being slow to take offense and eager to reconcile. I will shun gossip and divisive words, knowing that they are destructive to Christian fellowship. Six, I will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. I will be just and honest in my dealings and faithful in my responsibilities and commitments. I will abide by the standards of sexual purity and ethical integrity as taught in the Bible. Seven, I will watch over the other members in love as they watch over me. 
I will remember them in prayer, help them in sickness and distress, promote their spiritual growth, and stir them up to love and good deeds. Eight, I will seek to maintain a healthy marriage and godly relationship with my children, if applicable, as I know this honors God and is designed to picture the relationship between Christ and the church. If I am single, I will seek to maintain healthy relationships with others, especially the household of faith. Nine, I will contribute cheerfully, voluntarily, and regularly to this church for its general ministry and expenses, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel throughout the world. I will dedicate myself, my money, and my possessions to the cause of Christ as a faithful steward. 10. I will pray for, seek, and actively proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of my family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, acquaintances, and people of all nations. 11. If I become consistently neglectful of these duties or guilty of conduct by which the name of our Lord Jesus Christ or his church may be dishonored, I understand that I will be counseled, admonished, or if necessary, disciplined as per biblical standards for the purpose of restoring my fellowship with Christ, my fellowship with his church, and for my personal growth in holiness. If there comes a time when I decide I no longer wish to be a part of Jackson Bible Church, I will call the church or send a letter letting them know that I no longer wish to be considered a member Jackson Bible Church family. Moreover, I agree that when I leave this church body, I will, as soon as possible, carry out the spirit of this covenant by uniting with another local church where I can be taught to trust and obey the Word of God. And now we read Hebrews 13 as the closing. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip us with everything good that we may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. It's Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. Let's pray together, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for giving us your gospel. You have graciously, mercifully called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Your gospel has formed a gospel people for your own glory here in Jackson, South Carolina. And now our lives, Lord, are governed 
by this glorious gospel. This church seeks to take the gospel to our neighbors as well as across the entire globe. Lord, help us to be faithful ambassadors for Christ. Would you help us have the awareness of all these responsibilities? Lord, would you grow us into maturity, into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? May we take joy in these responsibilities. Help us, Lord, in areas that we're neglecting, perhaps. Help us also to realize, Lord, that these responsibilities are simultaneously glorious privileges. They are not some burdensome thing to us, but they bring us joy because we know they please you when we do these things in obedience. Lord, I also pray that you would use your gospel to bring others into your fold today. May you take the gospel that was shared today and cause it to bear fruit. Do what only you can do, bringing dead bones to life. We pray all of this in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.